Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Justice podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week I talked to Deborah Murphy, lead occupational therapist and mental health manager at HMP Pentonville. I talked to Deborah about her work redesigning the therapeutic services available on the wing in the prison and using trauma-informed principles to make it a place prison residents can come to, open up in and feel supported. I'm Deborah Murphy. I'm one of the mental health managers at HMP Pentonville. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist by background and I developed an occupational therapy day service within Pentonville. Uh, So my understanding is that my team are probably the only civilian team that manage an actual prison wing, albeit a prison wing that the men only come to during the day. Yeah, so we've got kind of a a wing within the prison that's a day service. And what on earth made you want to set something like that up? Because if I'm correct, you are, uh, were and are the driving force behind it. So what led you to want to do something like that? Well, I had an incredibly persuasive manager. I was working in a secure hospital. So I was working in a medium secure unit for a number of years uh, as part of the NHS. And we got a number of contracts uh, into the prison service as mental health services were expanding into prisons. And I can't take full responsibility for for the positive place that's there because it's actually existed for 20 years. So there's always... Pentonville was quite forward-thinking in having a day service many, many years ago. So initially it was run by officers. um, So it's very much part of the fabric of the prison system. And then as healthcare uh, moved more into the hands of the NHS, it was run by uh, a nurse previous to me. Um... But I suppose um, probably what you're alluding to, Edwina, is that I brought about quite a number of changes when I went into post. So although there'd always been a service there and it always had a therapeutic value, always very much had a therapeutic value, um, I think what came when our NHS Trust took over and when I came into post was quite a significant injection of money But also it came at a time when we were really looking at moving away from a kind of what was sort of a leisure facility that very much had a therapeutic leaning to having therapy as the focus. So I was really redesigning 
what felt like a leisure-based activity service into something that was really aligned with um, a therapeutic service of the nature that you would find within a hospital unit for people with mental health problems. Okay, so in in layman speak, um, the leisure activities you talk about, for those um, listeners who don't work in prisons, what sort of things are you talking about and and how does that compare to sort of a therapeutic activity? So interestingly, it's not that it's... The activities themselves don't necessarily change. So, for example... Uh, we're very fortunate to have a pottery studio and we've had a pottery studio for 20 years. Um, But I suppose you can go to pottery and you can have a really nice time and that feels therapeutic and we all kind of know how that feels from from our own lives, that we can go and do an activity and it just makes us feel better and sometimes we can articulate why and sometimes we can't. And I guess what I'm always saying to the men, to put it into lay terms, is well, having fun should very much be part of your coming here to this service, but that's kind of a side effect because what we're really aiming for, uh, and this is very much embedded in the philosophy of occupational therapy and my background, is that we're using activities as a way of assessing people's mental health needs and then as a way of treating people's mental health needs. So there may be as many people in the pottery studio as there are specific mental health aims for why they're there so one person might be in the studio because they're managing their voices through working with clay another person might be in the studio uh, because they've been really struggling with feelings of self-harm and when they're engaged in something like pottery those feelings of self-harm go or it may be that they get a barometer that they may feel I often feel like harming myself. Actually, I feel like harming myself all the time and there's never a time when it's different. But actually, we use activity to enable people to see that despite the external world doesn't change, they might start to notice some internal shifts. So it's not that the activity is therapeutic or not therapeutic. It's more that how we're aligning it to that particular individual will be based on their own mental health, individual mental health needs. So I suppose that's the change. So it's almost like, a time when staff, whether it's OTs or whoever else might be there, it's almost intelligence gathering, is it, on someone's health? And then might you use the intelligence that you gather, just to put it in in those sort of terms, to then work out what else might benefit that individual? Yeah, so we're kind of, it's, it's kind of an assessment and it's the benefit all in one, really. So I guess we're yeah, intelligence gathering sounds very prison. <laughs> um, so we're trying to work with the person to understand themselves better and also get a better understanding of them. And I think, you know, I suppose I'm always going to take the chance to plug occupational therapy, but I think the beauty in prisons is, you know, you can work with a population of men that maybe haven't been brought up in a culture where sitting, facing somebody one-to-one and talking about your mental health difficulties and your feelings might not be very culturally normal. Uh, particularly in a male prison. So often we are using the activity as um, the therapy in itself or the assessment in itself, but it's also a a way that people relax much more in something that's much more normalised and day-to-day so that people may feel much more inclined to possibly work alongside you in silence for a period of time, uh, possibly chat about, you know, sort of very... um, 
I guess, superficial things. And as time moves on and relationships form over a, a very normalised activity, we might get into deeper areas around their mental health that they may not feel like opening up if you're sitting without anything between you and no activity. Yeah, and I guess it's so much less intense when you're engaged in an activity or when you're walking side by side with someone. And often people in prison, I think, can struggle, and many of us outside of prison can struggle with the intensity of sitting down opposite someone, a counsellor, tell me about your deepest, darkest fears and feelings. You're like, well, no thanks, rather not. Um, But yeah, so do you find that it's a good platform for people to start trusting you and then maybe just they start articulating gently some things? Yeah, absolutely. And then because it's also a group format as well, you know, a lot of the people that we come into contact with in the justice system have, you know, a lot of their difficulties can be interpersonal difficulties. So we also get to look at how relationships form with other people and how we can gently sort of start to try and Uh, mould how we think about how we behave together as a group and how we treat each other as a group and you know we're having to be sort of sensitive and allowing for some people may for example have a diagnosis of autism and being in a group is very difficult they might want to go off in the corner and work alone Um, for other people um, there may be the pottery as the kind of it's a bit like having a hidden curriculum the pottery might be the curriculum but the hidden curriculum might be How does this person deal with authority? Somebody telling them what they can and can't do within a session. You know, there's always very necessary rules. Can that person tolerate rules? Um, It may be that you find out a little bit more, you know, there's a real opportunity to find out positive things about people who may have started to form a very negative, um, you know, on the wings, they might have a very negative reputation and then you see them in a less structured group and there's opportunity for them to show a bit of care and assistance to somebody and show aspects of themselves which might not otherwise so readily reveal themselves unless you're in an activity. And I think we complement psychology very well um, because obviously there's a real place for that sitting down and talking with somebody and and, and analysing feeling. But it's a way, it's another route in for people that that's too intense for, or it can even be a stepping stone. It can be a therapy in itself, but I think in remand prisons and in particular, as you know, many people have got real histories of trauma and the first stages are sort of st- stabilising and grounding before people can start to think about and talk about trauma. So I think occupational therapy and activity is just a really good place to start for helping people kind of stabilise in a really non-threatening way. I remember visiting you in Pentonville, whenever that might have been, and I went onto the wing, which was fascinating. It was so colourful and alive and I think there was a recording studio or certainly someone who was recording stuff with the men and a kitchen and were they baking bread or did I make that up but I mean it was just a positive a lovely positive place but it didn't start like that did it? No no so when I um I mean just like you know many areas of public service you know it can be you know, funding can be a challenge and, you know, there's many, many priorities and we're all competing for different pots of money and priorities of of the, you know, the high levels of need. So when I first started, um, you know, that that sort of investment of money hadn't been there and there were lots and lots of areas crying out for investment. So um, I guess having come from a hospital uh, setting, I just sort of thought, well, this needs 
here we are in an environment where people have experienced so much discrimination and stigmatisation and always sort of the underdog and even the health service they get and the environment that they get to be in in that health service feels under par. So, um, yeah, so I, I worked really hard to, to uh, and went for an innovation fund and then uh, and managed to persuade, went into kind of a local Dragon's Den type competition and got £20,000. So just to clarify, there was no money that came from the prison budget. This was you. This was me going to the NHS and basically saying to the dragons, sort of the chief execs, well, I shouldn't even really be here uh, making a case to get a nice kitchen um, and a nice environment for the men in prison because we provide that to everybody in hospitals. That's just not up for discussion. So why is it that now that I've moved into a prison setting... I'm expected to work in and the men that I work with are expected to participate in therapy in uh, 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 an environment that's lesser than we provide in hospitals. So I made it very difficult for them to say no um, and they very fortunately said yes. Um, and then I was supported uh, by our head of healthcare to also then make a case to the commissioners to say, look, I've, I've managed to get this £20,000 off my own back and could you also think of contributing this extra that I've um, that I've assessed we're going to need to make the environment where we want it to be? And then myself and uh, the music teacher who you saw in, in action recording uh, is wonderful and he actually managed uh, the music and education at Holloway, so had a lot of experience of prisons as well. So between the two of us, we managed the building project in a prison, which was which was no small <laughs> which was no small feat actually. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. So, and I think you know, again, coming from from an OT background, an occupational therapy background, you know, part of our work is very much about ensuring that people have the functional skills to be able to look after themselves when they're generally when they're discharged from hospital, but also for, for when they're leaving prison. So, you know, being able to take care of your own personal care needs, being able to take care of your domestic needs, some of those basics that we take for granted. Um, a lot of the men that we've worked that we work with have had such disrupted childhood experiences or family experiences, or they perhaps got into they just perhaps haven't had the life opportunities to learn just those very basic skills of how to manage and look after life and look after themselves. So, you know, for OTs, kitchens are very fundamental to our practice. That that's somewhere that you can develop those life skills. But again, if you're going to look at it with a bit of a trauma-informed lens, you know, sitting around a kitchen table and breaking bread with people and eating with people and conversing with people is something that's very normalised in our culture, but it's something that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to have. And I very much had, very much had the feeling I wanted a hearth to the wing, that it needed to have a central point that people could gather and that it could feel like... Uh, this this has a homely environment as much as you can make a prison wing a homely environment that was very much the aim that it was somewhere that people felt that they could come and you know bearing in mind this is people that we're trying to target the most vulnerable men in the prison people with very serious mental health needs uh, and lots of histories of trauma that really using trauma-informed principles to think how can we make it feel like this is a place where you come, you open up, you feel at home, you feel able to interact in a different way? If you provide people with a space that they value, which says to them you are worth something, they are far less likely to want to destroy it. Whereas actually if you put them in, a, in an environment that is absolutely revolting, you've got nothing to lose, well, you know, we kind of know what happens. 
Um, but it sort of strikes me and maybe some of our listeners, you sort of think, well, isn't that, shouldn't that be happening with most of the people inside prison? Our taxpayers' money, should that not go to towards people? I know, I know some wrestle with, the, well, they shouldn't get anything. But the fact of the matter is, all these people bar sort of, you know, I don't know whether it's around 100, everyone else is coming out. We want them to come out calmer. We want them to come out more civilised human beings, some of them, who aren't so civilised. And, and it strikes me, and it might strike many others, that it's just a very, that seems like the type of bread and butter work that the prison system should be doing. And it shouldn't be reliant on mavericks like you doing an amazing job, scrabbling around, fighting for money, trying to make the case to the bigwigs in the NHS that actually people should not be treated and held in environments that you wouldn't put an animal in. Well, it's interesting you say that. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, of course. I've got to admit my bias. But, you know, I look at the, um, the stated aim by HMPPS of, of what prisons are about in terms of, you know, rehabilitation and meaningful activity. And, and meaningful activity is very much the core that my profession orientates around. And I joke when I talk to, I talk to students a lot and at conferences, and I'll say, when you read this statement from HMPPS, it, you, it makes you wonder why OTs aren't in charge of prisons, because we're very much, our whole philosophy is around, you know, meaningful activity and environments uh, influence how a person behaves and engages in their daily life. And, you know, environments communicate expectations of behaviour, I think. So um, it almost is a cue to us on how to respond, especially if you, um, you know, again, especially if your trauma and your early life experience hasn't really taught you what sort of person you should be in, in different sort of situations. So I think, you know, if you go onto a prison wing and you see peeling paint and it's grey and it's brutal and it's concrete... It kind of it kind of feels um, feels like it's sort of engendering fear or or lack of care immediately. I mean, it's they're very. I mean, especially the old Victorian prisons. They're very difficult environments to be in. There's a fascinating research pro project being done at the moment into the impact of Victorian prisons on both staff and prisoners. Um, that's really worth looking into. But I was speaking with a woman who interviewed me in that research and saying, well, really, what we've been trying to do is communicate something different and trying to communicate worth to people in the hope that people will behave then uh, from a place of being worth something and that other people are worth something and I remember we did a, a sort of a nature pro a project years ago on a council estate in North London quite a difficult council estate in North London and we noticed neighbours change immediately behaviour and friendliness changed when we planted an, an orchard and when we put an allotment in there and when we created seating spaces, you know, we respond to our environment. And one of the fundamental things I can remember sort of just looking at going into the unit when I took it over was there was all this sort of broken furniture secured to the floor. And I just thought, well, what does that communicate to people? It seems to communicate. And there's good reason, you know, there's good safety reasons why that was put there. But if you walk into a room to do therapy and all the furniture's pinned to the floor, you've all, you've immediately had said to you, I think you're the sort of person who's going to throw the furniture. So that's who I've labelled you as. And if I've labelled you as that, you may well start to fulfil, you may become a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
So my, yeah. my first thing was, well, how do we design an environment where people don't want to throw the furniture as opposed to pinning the furniture to the floor? Surely we need to sort of paddle upstream a little bit. And is that what you did on the wing? Did you yeah. remove fixed furniture? And how, how did you sort of change it? And what did it look like by the end? So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame this is a podcast and not visual. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, so we, we just, um, yeah, it just bought some furniture that was we set up as much as we could. Still chairs that you can't break readily or form into weapons. That wasn't difficult to find. But colourful items uh, that look as homely as possible. So we just scrapped anything broken, ugly. I have, uh, I can't remember William Morris's exact quote that everything should be functional and beautiful. Just sort of went from that premise that what sort of place do I want to be in all day? What sort of place is likely to bring the best out in people? And I kind of made a decision that prison issue cups, plates, it was all going and that everything would be attractive. And just partly because I think that's what I want, that's what I want for my team. But I also thought it was interesting, you know, this this gender thing that men it just feels like there's a gender thing that you can't give men beautiful things so we've gone flowery and we've gone kitsch and we've got plants and we've got spotted tablecloths and just lots and lots of colour and the response is really positive uh, from the men when they come. Because you said the men that came to you on your healthcare wing were very vulnerable. So did you notice a change in their behaviour from, you probably knew how they behaved in general population, and then what would they be like when they came to you? And do you have any examples, either positive or negative, when maybe a chair did go flying across the room or um, maybe it never happened? Well, actually, it's interesting because in the early days when I took over, before we kind of got a grip to grips with the changes, there were chairs flying. Um, and that was interesting because, yeah, what, what was important was to have proper risk assessment in place. So to really think about who we bring in, how we bring them in, do we bring, who do we bring in together? Uh, how long does it take to settle somebody in before we then start introducing more people in? And we learn, for example, very quickly, you know, we, we work with very young men uh, who often have real difficulties with managing their anger or, you know, regulating their emotions. And if we brought three or four very young men in together who are really struggling to regulate their emotions and really flash points of anger, Bringing them all in together was just utter chaos. But bring one or two in, get them embedded in the culture, get them thinking about this being their unit and that having ownership over the unit. Once they stabilised, we could bring more people in. So there was definitely a process, not only of changing the physical environment, but also learning socially. We just had to make a lot of mistakes. So a few chairs flew while we were making mistakes. And I think just clarifying the term vulnerable as well, because vulnerability can look very different in the prison population so it might not look like people's uh, you know obvious sort of idea of vulnerability some of the people that we work with are bouncing in between segregation and our wing so we we do risk assess everybody and because we don't have an officer present um so we're i never think of myself as a civilian but you do in prisons but as civilian staff members um managing prison wing without an officer present we had to think really carefully about how do we keep this place safe especially as we had in the early days sort of 30 men down at a time so we think really carefully who they are what are their risks can we manage their risks in a therapeutic environment just to interject there because i think that's a really important point so 
there was no prison officer there. Is that yeah. because they trusted you implicitly or is that because there wasn't enough staff to go around and they just crossed their fingers and hoped you could cope with it? <laughs> There's never been an officer detailed into that wing and that's not in the budgets. So that's never been something that's possible. Um, I think it's, you know, I think everybody would have mixed feelings about that. I think... Um, there's a freeing up so the positives are i think there's a real freeing up in the men that they're in an environment where there isn't any obvious uh you know appearance of discipline um but then of course there is also the negative that we can start to feel a bit separated from the prison in a way that might not always be helpful um and also you know there's the obvious difficulty that well it's again it's a pro and a con so we have to manage the challenging behavior um, we are relying on sometimes relatively junior staff, uh, all occupational therapists, to deal with quite high levels of risk. So obviously that's got its challenges. And obviously that's not going to be everybody who comes into my profession's cup of tea. Um, because there's quite a lot of behaviour that occurs before it's at the level where you press an alarm. If you press an alarm, the officers are all there very quickly. But you're trying to avoid getting to that point. And, you know, obviously de-escalation is the most of it. And, and you know, that can be quite challenging. Um, but of course, it does allow for something very different because I think, you know, with its security, with security as such a primary focus in prisons, it can often be charging, resolve this issue, get it safe, get the perpetrators out of here. Whereas, because we don't have that presence of an officer, it means that we all have to do things in a very different way. And that demands that we ask of the men in prison that they think very differently about how they interact with us and the environment. So I think it's allowed them and us to think about how they take responsibility in a very different way. And, you know, it allows those conversations for me to say things, you know, we often have conversations. We have amnesties from time to time when something goes missing and it just needs to reappear. And let I'm just going to walk out of here and when I walk back in 10 minutes that's just got to be on the table and sometimes an amnesty is the best way to go because otherwise you'll never find what you're looking for if something goes missing. Prisoners in Pentonville think G-Wing is the most challenging wing it's a very big wing and that's you know got all its complexities so G-Wing is often mentioned as the difficult place to be and I will say to them we all co-create this being the place that you like to come to but it's very, very quick that this could turn into the same sort of environment as G-Wing if we don't all work together to make this different. So yeah. because we haven't got that, we haven't got the brute force that can run in and take care of some really quite intense interactions and possibly even physical violence, although really not very much since we've got our principles in place and our environment uh, supportive. But because we all know that we are relying on something different to officers stepping in and resolving things, we've got something to work with in our conversations about we all need to take responsibility and we all need to make sure this is somewhere we want to be. And actually, take removing people from the service is the last port of call, but we do give people... It's a really important part of keeping safe is to suspend people for a week if their behaviour starts to transgress the community's agreed rules too much. So that they, um, we frame it as, you know, they've got time to reflect on how they come back and cooperate with the others in the environment in a way that we all stay safe and we're having, 
you know, a positive time, but it's also time for us sometimes to recover from what's been really difficult interactions and for us to think, can we really truly support this person in a helpful way? And how long would you typically have a man on your wing? Is there a certain amount of time? Does it depend on their sentence? What's the... What are the rules around that? Fortunately, it tends to kind of have its own sort of life of turnover, which I've been really pleased about. I always thought when I went in, um, this is going to have to be time limited. And then how do you send someone back to the wings after they experience this incredibly supportive environment? And then you put them back into the wings with much less structure again. But that hasn't been necessary, actually, because it's a remand prison. There's a degree of churn of people moving on, being sentenced, moving on to prisons. Um, you know, being transferred to sentence prisons. Um, sadly, there is a degree of churn with people that we just realise that their behaviour transgresses the community's rules too much and we can't safely manage them. And we have to think about, you know, where else can they be supported in their system that isn't within our wing? And um, so we have a, a variety of other mental health services that we may be able to offer them that isn't the day-to-day uh, structured activity programme. Some men will move on to education or work opportunities. We leave the door open because it's men with extra uh, additional vulnerabilities often. We'll say, well, why don't you try work? But if it doesn't work out for you, if it's too much pressure in a mainstream role, we'll put you straight to the top of the waiting list and you can come back. So we do try and have moving on pathways. Right, so they can't be on the therapeutic wing and in education at the same time. It's one thing or the other. Because there's such um, competition for meaningful activities in prison and we're still, we're in a kind of strange region because we're a mental health service but we are also an activity programme so it's still seen by the prison very much as uh, an an activities programme. Also activities all run at the same time so it's one or the other. Although with COVID, (laughs) that's sort of changing slightly. All our routines are changing slightly, but that's quite difficult to, (laughs) it's quite difficult to impart, so I won't start. But um, it may, if somebody's only coming to us once, you, in the old, in the old model, people used to come to us daily. So they would come to us in the morning and then they probably have their uh, association, exercise, showers, etc. in the afternoon. So they wouldn't really have time to do both. Um, but at the moment, because we're all running on limited programmes, we just take priority. So they might go to education on other days, but we'd make sure that they didn't miss their mental health service contact. OK. And then culturally within the prison, you know, there's always cultures of um, staff that aren't really pro things like this. Did you get, um, I should imagine you did, um, I know from the, my own work that I do in prisons, there's always a healthy healthy group of um naysayers who aren't into the kind of work that we do did you struggle with that and if so how did you overcome yeah I mean I'm sure they exist but they probably don't naysay to me so anybody can refer to my service including the men in prison themselves so um what I think the unfortunate thing is because healthcare sort of slightly so the way that Pentonville structured it's that very famous kind of radial design and then there's kind of a walkway that's covered outside that leads to this additional building that's been kind of tagged on the end many years later, which is healthcare. I don't find I get naysayers, but unfortunately what I get is people turning up and going, my God, I didn't know this place existed. And they work in the prison. Now, it's a big prison and there's a lot of staff. And as a mental health service, we do get involved with all the new staff's induction process so that we try and advertise our services as much as we can. And I always invite the officers, you know, 
come down, if you want to talk more, if you want to see the environment. But despite all the efforts, there are still far too many officers saying, I didn't know this existed. And, you know, there's a, a, a strong competition, isn't there, for people's attention in prisons. There's many, many, yeah, there's just many things competing for officers' attention. But I would say that there isn't naysayers, but I would say that there's about 10% of officers probably do about 98% of my referrals. So, you know, it will land on how enthusiastic the officer is about the unit. Um, there's been some really, going back to your question earlier, there's been some really positive examples of people who are considered extremely challenging on the wings. And then they come to us and they, it's like they're transformed into a different person. Um, so even if that doesn't, for sometimes that change can also then go back to the wings. Sometimes, in honesty, it doesn't. They're like, their their behaviour's great in the in an environment that supports their needs. When they go back into the wings and they're facing what they see as authority and discipline, their behaviour goes back, reverts to type. So at least it gives officers a break. At the very least, there's this person who's yeah. caused an absolute havoc on your wing send them over to us we're managing them fine over here you get to have a break they get what they need it, it, it's beneficial for everybody so i think there's some officers that have really seen that and so they really really value it there'll be people who are kind of a bit indifferent like what are these weird people doing doing pottery and yoga and music you know yeah. you know you know these soft skills what are they doing with these soft skills we need to you know these people have committed crimes there's always going to be that kind of response and then there's people who are probably just too distracted to even really care. It's, it can feel a bit like as long as you're getting on with it and you're doing what you're contracted to do and you don't bring any problems to our doors, all is well and good. So I don't, that's the kind of the worst end of it. It doesn't, I don't, I'm sure there's people who will go, what on earth are they doing in there? But uh, they don't say it to me. <laughs> and have you ever had a man who's sort of come down and actually just can't cope with the environment you know, I think a lot of people who haven't had nice things happen to them very much in their lives ever. They, um, certainly from my experience, they they almost find it a bit threatening and a bit, they're a bit sceptical of when people are nice to them. So they tend to push the self-destruct button because they're very wary of sort of good people because they don't really understand them. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can remember one of my mantras when I first started was don't mistake nice for stupid, because I think there was, it was a bit confusing. And, you know, there was that tendency to, to you know, here we are, we've got lots of nice stuff on offer. And, and people would kind of push some of those boundaries thinking, well, this is obviously somebody who's got absolutely no, you know, if you're nice, you've obviously got absolutely no idea what you're doing and we can just keep pushing. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people are actually seeking those boundaries uh, and they're, they're relieved when they're there, that they know where they are. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about compassionate environments, but it doesn't have to be woolly. You know, compassion needs to be helping people understand this is what another human being is and isn't going to tolerate from you. And maybe we need to think about practicing that here because one day you're going to be out into the community and you really need to know what's likely to ostracize you from people and what's likely... To, to help people warm to you uh, and, and you know we're all learning that all the time aren't we um so yeah i think so for some people there's a desire to exploit it and to try and push and find out where the boundaries are for other people it feels a bit um a bit uncool almost like a bit embarrassing so i can remember i've got an example in my mind of a poetry group and a guy who was obviously 
just couldn't, you know, he'd gone into the group, he, you know, not everything's uh, voluntary, so he'd chosen to go into this poetry group, but it, I think it all felt a bit much, so he started just joking around and trying to be quite disruptive in the group. But the important thing of forming that community that the men take ownership themselves is what happened when the community started to form really positively is the other men will just either ignore it or shut it down. So, um, then the person who's trying to sort of be disruptive, usually because they're a bit embarrassed because they don't quite know what to do with it, will then think, oh, okay, there is actually permission here that I can sit and write poetry. And these guys who are a bit older than me, and some of them are quite tough looking, and they seem to be writing poetry, and this is kind of okay. So I think it's really important that they start sort of managing themselves and the expectations, because I think they do it much more successfully with us sort of guiding from the background than us trying to set the sort of the rules and the culture. And you'll often see people sort of come in with a bit of the street swagger, you know, the jeans halfway down the bum, hands down the waistband, swaggering, street talk, really kind of, yeah, that kind of communicating in a way that's sort of trying to push you away a bit and show that, uh, and to keep a certain persona up. And it's quite interesting on a number of occasions, I've seen men who've been in the community for a bit longer just go up and go, look, mate, you just don't need to do that with this lot. They're all right, you know. You can actually be yourself. <laughs> yeah. And then what about when it comes to impact? Like, are you able to, at the end of, you know, a man's time on the wing, be able to sort of say in any meaningful way, this is how far they've come, uh, this is where they should go next, or is the nature of prison, well, you move on? You often don't see people ever again, do you? You don't know what prison they're going to go to. You don't keep in touch with them in the community because it's impossible and not yeah. appropriate sometimes. It's been a mixed bag. And funnily enough, some people choose to keep in contact with us. So it's not been unusual that people have contacted us um, through the prison switchboard just to let us know how they're getting on, which I think is a great compliment. Um, but, yeah, it's, I mean, it's complex in remand, isn't it? Because sometimes you know people are going to leave and you know exactly what their pathway is going to be. And sometimes you're literally halfway through a session and an officer turns up and says, pack your bags, you're going. So there's no chance to really think it through. But I suppose we're always prepared that move on could occur at any point. So we do try to think about that with people. Um, so just from a professional point of view, because some of the people we work with are going into hospitals, we try and get a base, and some of them are under community mental health teams, we will try and get a baseline assessment of their function and their needs and how they manage different aspects of life so that sometimes you can get a really good assessment of people's capabilities in prison, ironically, because that might be the only time that they feel stable enough they're on the medication they're not taking uh, illicit substances and there's a period of stability that you can see really what's going on with their mental health so that's really helpful to communicate to substance misuse teams and to community mental health teams outside um, a baseline of when this person's clean and well supported so sometimes ironically you can get the best picture in this really uh, challenging environment um, so yeah, we'll provide reports on to other hospitals that people go to. Sometimes we'll provide reports just to the person themselves because they want to have a sense and a discussion about their own progress. So we'll do that as a matter of course professionally is set aims of what we're hoping to achieve and then be reflecting on whether we are achieving those and then providing reports to people about where we think they're at. And we don't directly do offender-specific work, but that will come into it. So helping people sometimes think about, for example, 
I don't know, so for example, if somebody's um, crime uh, or their index offence is related to uh, maybe even bullying and domineering with women, we might think about how that might play out in the centre when they're dealing with female staff or how they're relating to female staff, how they're relating to their peers, um, and trying to think about what brought them into prison and think about what we're seeing in this environment that is continuing to be the sort of difficulty that may lead them back into those problems outside. So we're not saying we're reducing reoffending because we just don't have the data to suggest that, but we are trying to work on the well-being and mental health needs that may con and interpersonal difficulties that may contribute to not forming uh, more positive social relationships and may lead uh, uh, and lifestyles that may lead people back to, yeah yeah may make people more vulnerable to reoffending. So we do try and provide reports for the person themselves. Sometimes people will invite us to their parole hearings either as a witness or actually to, to give evidence. So that's something that can happen at times uh, that we can provide information to parole to say this is how we experience this person, this is the commitment they're making while they're with us. We've had really good examples of people, um, with men on IPPs, who've been really, really adamant um, that they didn't perpetrate. Uh, I've got one man in mind in particular, very adamant that he didn't uh, perpetrate a domestic violence offence, and that was just getting him stuck at parole every time. And a two-year relationship, day by day by day, of accepting him as a person on the whole, not saying we're accepting the behaviour in that offence, but saying just really trying to help him see that he was seen as um, in his fullness, whether he committed this offence or not. And just really two years of chipping away and helping him get to the stage where he could accept that he had done these things that he was being accused of and that he could communicate that to parole in a way that made them feel that he, he was moving forward. So we work very closely with probation as well within the prison. Sometimes we'll agree with probation officers sort of areas of work. Uh, and that's all done very, obviously, very openly with the men's involvement as well. Um, so, yeah, there, there is there is ongoing sort of recommendations. And we also um, will try to feed people into activities in the community. So, say, for example, somebody's been working with our music teacher for a number of months. There's a number of music projects that are supported, that are funded for people who've been in the justice system. But there's also mental health projects. We'll also look into colleges and what resources are out there. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some really, really good networks to form out there of how we uh, help people move on. How much we communicate about things around their mental health depends on the service we're referring on to. As you're talking, again, it's sort of you, you just sort of think, right, this is all crucial work. This is all good, positive work. And it is just interesting and slightly excruciatingly frustrating <laughs> when you hear that actually the job that the prison service should be doing um no money is forthcoming from those areas and it's dependent on either charitable foundations charitable people philanthropists to be making sure that this work is being done but i will leave my rant there um, but it also certainly sounds to me like every prison could do with a deborah murphy and certainly every prison could do with with a therapeutic wing like the one you have you have been describing so well done all, on all your fantastic work as I said I have had the um lucky opportunity to visit the wing and it was 
homely and it had a good vibe and people were sort of positive and upbeat and it was very different to the rest of the prison that I also went round. So congratulations on on what you did and thank you so much for for talking to me today. Thank you. I have to get my final plug in because it's my personal obsession but Every prison needs an occupational therapist. Yeah, that was, I was going to say, actually, having been to so many prisons, you don't hear them, you don't hear of occupational therapists being talked about very much at all. So, yes, I am glad we've been able to plug the uh, the role of the OT within, within the prison world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Edwina. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.